0: Dollars to Donuts with your host Steve Portugal. Welcome to Dollars to Donuts, the podcast where I talk with the people who lead user research in their organization. Northern Soul was a musical and cultural movement in the UK in the late 60s and early 70s. It was all about obscure soul music from America. The movement really was a scene with clothing and dance styles and clubs hosting dance parties, but let's just focus on the music. For people in the U.K. in the 60s, it wasn't easy to get music from the U.S. In fact, this difficulty figures into the origin story of the Rolling Stones, where Mick Jagger and Keith Richards reconnect during a chance meeting on a train platform, and one notices the other has possession of some rare and desirable albums from the U.S., Anyway, Northern Soul started in that context initially, the difficulty of getting any of this music, and then went on to specifically emphasize the rarities. Remember that there was no consumer music duplication technology. You had to have the 45. Many of the songs that became Northern Soul legends were commercial failures, failed artists, failed labels. And yet these 45s, these songs found a second life across a time, across an ocean, across cultures. Decades later, we have the internet and we have globalization and we embrace consumer enthusiasm. So there's a cafe in Beijing modeled after Central Perk from the TV show Friends. Mexican-American lowrider culture has been taken up in Brazil and New Zealand. I find these examples fascinating and given the frequency that these stories appear, I'm not the only one. Given the work that I do, my interest is specifically because these stories typically involve people going around a brand. The producer makes certain products and provides them to a certain audience in a certain marketplace. Sure, it's a statement of identity to watch Russian Doll and Netflix, but your effort to both discover and consume is minimal. But to buy authentic parts for a product that isn't made anymore, from another country, for example, takes a lot more effort, even with the internet. And this kind of lead user consumption is interesting. So that's the consumer side, going around the default path laid out by the company. And on the producer side, larger companies seem pretty intent on managing both globalization and localization. You can go to a McDonald's in 101 different countries, but the menu will be different. Outside McDonald's in Thailand, Ronald is posed giving the Y, the traditional Thai greeting of a slight bow with hands pressed together in front of the chest. Even though the McDonald's brand spans culture, the Thai experience is specific and self-contained within its own environment. McDonald's redefines itself within the boundaries of the national border, and even though we know Ronald can be found everywhere, this Ronald reminds a Thai customer that he is specifically in Thailand. Ronald is trying hard not to be the tourist who awkwardly adopts the local customs in order to seem down, but actually someone who has moved in and become part of the scenery. Of course, brands, their symbols, and indeed their products change meaning when they move from one culture to another, but we can consider the bare minimum meaning just the fact of its existence in any particular culture. Earlier this year, McDonald's in the U.S. introduced a limited-time international menu featuring Stropwaffle McFlurry, the Grand McExtreme Bacon Burger, the Tomato Mozzarella Chicken Sandwich, and Cheesy Bacon Fries from respectively Netherlands, Spain, Canada, and Australia. Linda Van Gosen, McDonald's vice president of menu innovation, said in a statement that we know our U.S. customers are curious about McDonald's international menu items. It doesn't matter if these are any good. and These aren't intended to be authentic representations of the cuisine of these other countries. They are presented as authentic exemplars of McDonald's in these other countries. The point here, the fascinating thing to me, is that McDonald's is acknowledging, at least to its American market, that seams exist that the way you experience the brand is limited by your geography, and another variation of McDonald's, a non-American version, is out there. This is a very contained action by McDonald's, but the way it breaks the frame by pointing to something outside what they so carefully control and design is huge. So the homework for all of us is to keep our eyes open for how and when producers acknowledge in any way what lies outside the set of things they are providing to us. I believe this will continue to change. And for those of us who are in the business of producing things to be consumed, McDonald's is signaling here that we have more choices than we might have previously thought possible. This is an important aspect of the work that I do, helping companies to unpack these shifts in culture and consider the ways they might respond in terms of what is appealing to the marketplace and what is authentic to the company itself. My clients have a lot of deep knowledge of what they have been doing, but they often need help getting outside that. And I help teams to build a new shared perspective and a plan to move forward. And so the best way to support this podcast is to support my business. Hire me to help you bring a nuanced external perspective to how you understand your current and future markets. Get in touch and let's discuss what we might do together. I'd also love to hear how this podcast is helping you in your work email me at donuts at or find me on Twitter at dollars to donuts. That's D-O-L-L-R-S-T-O-D-O-N-U-T-S. Let's get to the interview with Jesse Zolna. He leads the user experience research team at ADP's Innovation Lab. Jesse, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you, Steve. Thanks for having me.
0: Let's start by having you Say a little bit about who you are and what you do, and we'll go from there.
1: Okay. So I lead the user experience research team at ADP's Innovation Lab, is one of the ways I put it. ADP has a sort of complex um, arrangement of business units, and I fall within what we call shared products, which is actually not—it's the the stuff that runs behind all the different business units. So I end up interacting with a lot of the different front-end products that ADP makes. And so just as a, a short term, I say the Innovation Lab. And I, I started here about five years ago when uh, that we opened the Innovation Lab. So ADP uh, made the decision to invest in UX and agile and design thinking sort of all at the same time. And um, I think I was hired number 18 or 19 in the group. And so I'm leading the UX research team here in the lab.
0: So for the, those of us outside the organization, what things would, do we, could we learn about that ADP makes that you're kind of working to inform yeah. the design of? At
1: a, the simplest level, uh, ADP has sort of three business units, small, medium, and large businesses. Uh, and we make essentially payroll products uh, for those businesses. That's our core product. And then on top of that, we layer uh, what we call HCM products, so anything that's related to HR, really. Um, and then a lot of that will feed into payroll. Like So we have what we call core HR, which is all... People's data about who they are, where they live, and that stuff, you know, uh, impacts the taxes that we take out of your paycheck. Uh, We have time products within each of these business units. Um, You know, you got to record your time and obviously that calculates your pay. We have um, retirement services products, so like 401k stuff, medical benefits, that kind of stuff. So if you think about the paycheck as sort of the center of our business and then all the sort of... we. We have lots of different products that sort of feed into that center business.
0: What does HCM stand for?
1: Human Capital Management. Okay, it's the yeah the newer term for HR.
0: Oh, I'm old enough. I remember when it was called Personnel, and then that got outmoded by HR, and now I'm going to be a dinosaur if I say HR.
1: Well, so back then HR were bean counters and just a a, a um, cost center. You know, the the people were just a cost center. Now today. People and talent are company's most valuable asset.
0: Okay, so that's that. So the term reflects kind of a different yeah. mindset. Yeah, yeah, that's what a, that is. A, yep. Okay, I'm sure having heard it from you, I'm sure I'll now be recognizing the term when I come across. But I haven't heard that before. So I'm wondering, uh, you know, you describe some of the different services that are provide to. Right, you're providing services to companies who use these products to do all the human capital management and payroll for employees. How much of these different services do the employees themselves interact with? Yeah, so
1: the um, initial project that I worked on when I came here is what we call the employee and manager experience, um, which is essentially uh, both a desk and web app that the employees use. And until ADP decided to focus on that, they really, that was sort of an afterthought. We were building products for the HR and payroll managers that you know, worked at our clients. And uh, a necessary evil was things where the employee needed to be able to go look up their information or enter their time or whatever. You know, If employees wanted to get paid, they'd figure out how to use our time products. So we didn't in- invest a lot in that. But then, yes, part of the decision to focus on that, they realized that actually 99% of their users were employees and managers because each company has 10 HR and payroll people and 10,000 employees or something like that. And it was also sort of a push into realizing that technology was changing and people were expecting better from everything that they use on a day-to-day basis and getting basically complaints from our clients that their employees found our products hard to use which would then reduce um, productivity or for both the employee who is trying to figure out how to you know enter their time or you know figure out what medical benefits they want rather than working and then the HR and payroll person had to fix errors or help the employee navigate the system instead of do like more strategic work that they should be doing in within like talent management
0: right so the the, the customers are identifying your your customers are identifying changes they want to see in the products you're delivering to them, or the the, the kinds of experiences you're creating. Yeah. which is not a, not a signal to ignore. Yeah. Um. Okay. So this is the innovation lab. And so, what does that mean? Those like those are both sort of very loaded words. Yeah. But so, in for ADP, what is what was sort of the what was created at this kind of transition point?
1: In the beginning, it really was an experiment in changing sort of the ratio of UX to development and at the same time, moving to an agile uh, development process. So what they did was they hired all new people from different places. Um, I came from Barnes & Noble, worked on like their e-commerce site and the Nook device uh, the lead designer who came in at the same time uh, came from, like, he had in a media background. So he had worked for NBC and MTV in the past on their, like, web properties. So they were trying to bring people in from different industries um, and think differently about what, you know, consumers want. And they hired about, I think, 100 people in the early days, and 20 of them were UX people, whereas the rest of the company, there were probably... 10,000 developers and less than 20 UX people. So it was an experiment. And if we really invest in this, like, will the outcomes be different? So we had the employee and manager experience was one of our first projects. And we sort of proved that you can move faster and get better results with that new to ADP innovative way of thinking. And uh, so... The idea was to be an example to the rest of the company. So now the rest of the company has seen what we've done at the lab, and over the last five years has really adopted a lot of those practices and hired a lot more UX people in each of the different business units, each of the different groups, and st- be- and transitioned to agile development process. And both of those have you know been more successful in some places than others. But uh, everybody is trying to move that way.
0: It's interesting that you frame you know this as an experiment. You know, what I mean, what did what did that feel like kind of in the early days? You were, as you said, sort of a, one of the early people to come into this. What, what did it feel like to be in something that was framed as an experiment in a company this size, and I think with a big history or a long history?
1: Yeah, um, exciting because, you know, there's the opportunity to jump right in and uh, have a large impact because there are so many clients and so many people using our products, yet we could start from scratch at the same time. And that's how they you know, sold it to us like a, a startup within a big company. And, you know, we, we already have scale. Um, and the other thing was we could do whatever we wanted, kind of, just be, you know, if we thought that was the right thing to do, um, we could do that. Um, you know, we didn't have to go through all the red tape uh, that the rest of the company had to do. So we could just uh, spend money on recruiting. We could, you know, have a very simplified NDA, you know, t- talking about research processes that would just make it easier for us to get our work done, um, not have to get approval through from legal and GSO and everything, which these days I we have to deal with a lot more.
0: So, you know, over these five years, as you said, the things that only were happening in the lab are now starting to, or have started to happen in other parts of the organization. That seems like, well, that's one measure of success for the experiment is it's, it's, kind of creating models for practices for the organization to adopt. And I wonder, what does that then create or open up space for the innovation lab itself to then move into different kinds of work? Uh, sort of after having birthed some processes and have them been taken up, what, what shifted for you all?
1: At the beginning, uh, we were really focused on our one product um, and proving uh, that, you know, the user-centered design process could work um, and you could get rapid feedback, and and it didn't slow down development. Um, and then you would see the effects in the market. Um, that's one, me- and and now other teams are doing that. And that, as you said, one metric for uh, success. Another one is that we've uh, sort of changed the organization's thinking around uh, UX and what uh, user-centered design really is. So, you know, the sort of simpler application of UX research is, you know, usability testing or um, more evaluative, or maybe even like like concept testing, like lean UX testing. Uh, when I came in, lean UX testing was like really all they thought research was. And so we've established um, also a program of ethnographic research where we do sort of foundational stuff that doesn't necessarily have like a, what changes can we make to this product to make it better, but broader like what changes can we make to this suite of products or an understanding you know, how our clients are using our products within a greater context to look for their quote-unquote white spaces. And that has really um, opened uh, up the organization's eyes in terms of how research can help strategically too. You know, the strategy used to be the domain of only product management. Uh, they would come up with a strategy, you know, based on what our competitor did, now here's our new strategy. Um, by the way, the competitor probably just copied us. So there's a lot of like circularness to that. So we've been able to bring in new thoughts and new ideas, which I think has helped us rethink the way that we're approaching providing tools to our clients to to manage their human capital.
0: And is there a, a connection between, I don't know, the success you had with these initial, initial efforts in terms of changing the mindset of the organization? I mean, as you say, ideas only came from these kinds of places. And now, I mean, obviously we know that Ethnographic research can provide the kinds of new ideas that you're talking about. But the change that's happened here is that I think you're describing that people are receptive to that. They're like, oh, yeah, this is another source for us to think about what to do. So is there a connection between that mindset, which is new, and then the was that driven by the work that the lab started off with?
1: Yeah, well, it's related to what I said earlier about us being able to do what we think we should do because we think that's the right thing to do. So, you know, in the early days, we were working on payroll and, you know, aside from the employee and manager experience, I was helping with the payroll product, which again is our core product. I realized that like we knew a lot of people, we had people who knew a lot about how Uh, the time product works and how they gather that information, and then it gets sent into payroll. We knew a lot about how payroll would process that. We knew a lot about how core HR data would influence that. And so we had people who understood those silos really well, but there was no understanding of how those things all kind of worked together. So I proposed that we do some site visits where we just go watch people during their payroll process and just like, you know, say, Teach me how to do payroll from your company, because also every company kind of does it differently. They all have ADP payroll, most of our clients, but then they might have our time system, they might have somebody else's time system, they might have, um, you know, somebody else's uh, compensation management system or ours or whatever. So everybody kind of does it differently. So we went to visit a bunch of different clients and like try to find the themes across. And what we came back was information that was very surprising to the people internally. And actually our first we, we presented it several times in the first few, the reaction basically was, give me the name of that client. I'm gonna go show them how to do it right. And I was like, well, I could give you the name of all 12 clients we visited, but then what about the other, you know, 99 percent that we didn't visit? Are you gonna go train them too? And they like didn't quite get they wanted to go solve it for that client that's like very solution oriented rather than understanding the problem and thinking about how can we work together. And they literally didn't believe me that clients would double and triple check the time data before you know before they put it into payroll and then after they put it into payroll and spent hours doing this, like literally going through Excel spreadsheets. The One of the funny things that the researcher on the project um, came up with, she used to call it the rulers of payroll. We literally had clients that would use a ruler on the screen so they could look across these really long lines of data and somebody else would be on the other screen and they'd say, you know, whatever, 1,400, I don't even know what the numbers were, but they would like call and respond to make sure that the like thousands of lines of data, like, and they were like, why would they do that? It just imports automatically. And I mean, the answer really was because one time in the last year or whatever, or maybe 20 times, I don't know, there was an error and that caused like somebody to not get paid who like, you know, and the payroll person thinks maybe they won't be able to pay their mortgage because they didn't get paid. So they want to be super sure. And so anyway, it was like this idea of understanding things across these silos coming up with these new insights um, that we never would have seen if we didn't look across those silos. And so since then, we've done probably eight or nine of those projects. And and really, we kind of started off with, here's a big domain that we kind of want to really understand deeply. And um, we don't necessarily have a specific like piece of the product that we're going to improve from that. And um, I think it just, it gives everybody uh, a better understanding and it gets the silos together. We actually, that research program we have has three stated goals. The first is to get people from different silos working together and to understand our users in the same way. So that they like, when they talk, they have like an equal understanding and like the same vernacular and things like that when they do try to get together and work together. Uh, number two is just that found, we call the foundational understanding of what are our clients doing? What are the biggest pain points? Um, how can we help them? And number three is um, to include non-researchers in the research process as well. So when we go on site, we we aim to have one researcher and two or three like developers, product managers, designers as like observers and note takers. So they get to participate in the research pro- process, understand it, see how it works, maybe bring some of that. Uh, not only you know, bring that empathy back home with them, but bring some of that research process and understanding too, so they can think about when might be another time to do research as
0: well. Lots of really fascinating things. I want to pick one thing to go back to. Um, So when you started to present back these kinds of behaviors that you observed, like the triple checking and so on, that was surprising, that can't, you know, I'm going to go fix that. Um, What do you do after that? What do you do to sort of bring, to help these stakeholders Understand what you learned and what it means, and 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 a better way to think about it than sort of fixing each of your you know thousands of clients.
1: Yeah. So actually, that initial reaction was why we decided to include the third goal, which is to get them out there. Yeah. Because I figured if these people were there and they saw it, they wouldn't not believe me. Yeah. I, I was lucky that um you know we had some of the people who helped to establish the innovation lab and really believed in user centered design and research and and um are the, you know, of the mindset that they want to learn. You know, I think that uh, makes a difference too with researchers working with people who want to learn versus people who just want to, who don't necessarily want to learn or just want you to prove that they're right or whatever. That's a whole nother topic of conversation. Um, but luckily we had a few people there who, you know, from a, I don't know, a executive level or air cover level were able to I remember literally one woman said to me, you know, I told her, don't shoot the messenger. Like, listen to him. Like, try to understand what's going on, and try to try to work with that. And, uh, you know, so that was super helpful to have like some believers that could help them kind of work through it, really. And it took time too. Like, you know, just like the initial reaction was, that's wrong. Like, no way. Let me call them. But you know, over time, I think you know, these people were able to realize, oh, wait, maybe I should like look into that. And maybe if they did look into it, they could see some evidence that, um, uh, that helped them, you know, believe and understand it better too. Cause also having gone and done this ethnographic research, I get a super deep understanding and I can only present so much of that data and like try to tell that story and, and purposely, you know, try to tell it at a high level so they can understand it all. And it's really getting those deep details and those almost the anecdotal evidence that really, you know, brings color and life to it. That, again, the reason that we came up with that third goal to get those people out there.
0: What do you say if you think about someone who might be someone I mean, I think your caveat about they, they want to learn, someone who wants to learn but maybe is inclined a little bit to say, well, I better intervene and fix their erroneous behavior what What changes for them when they see the behavior that we're talking about versus they hear about it from you? like what is I think there's something fundamental that is, that's different for them that, that but what is that?
1: I mean, I think it just becomes more real. It's no longer a rumor or you know somebody else saying this. They like see it. It's no longer a PowerPoint, you know, slide or even. Uh, you know well, and this is why you use quotes and videos in your presentations, right? Like that makes it real too. It's no longer uh you know words on a page. It's you know a a person feeling pain in front of them, and it's just like more it just becomes more real and tactical and you know I think that just fills in all the the
0: details and that you need. It reminds me of a I guess sort of a minor failure a few years ago where. Our users we were looking at were people that were, I guess, unbanked is the phrase or semi-banked and, you know, tech company where the people, the team themselves was not, that was not their lifestyle. Uh, And we went out in the field with them and they were so affected by the experience. But then they asked us to, we got, I think, you know, we didn't do a good job sort of understanding the request, but they wanted an edited video of an extremely tight running time to like use in part of a meeting. And I think it emerged later on that the objective was for people to have the same emotional reaction from that, that they did being in the field. And and I get where they're coming from, right? Like this really changed us and we want the rest of the organization to have this and I, I think later eventually i realized oh you can't get that from a video even though as you say videos sort of bring it alive more than like words on a page might but this experience of being out there and uh, you know i think you're right about sort of the anecdotal stuff it's not there's the facts and sort of the details of the narrative, but you just saw things. I think those people were very moved by what happened to them in the field. And
1: and I think part of it too is, you know, they might not go to all of the visits, they but they see one person. And then when you present to them like the theme, you know, the summary, then they can say, oh yeah, I saw that in Joe, right? So then they like, they just understand it sort of one level deeper, right? And, yeah. and that's what like, as a researcher, we often do that. Like we have these themes and we understand it at a really deep level, but it's hard to get that deep understanding. It's hard to express that without showing all the data, but you're trying to do, you know, just like these people in this meeting only had a certain amount of time, you know, you only have, you can't have everybody go participate in the entire research project the entire time. So you have to summarize for them. That's what, part of what we do is we go learn things and we summarize it for people so that they don't have to go learn it themselves. Uh, But uh, you, you just can't get all of are your learnings across. It's hard. And which is part of the reason on another subject why, you know, no offense, but I personally prefer being like an internal research person and like having worked on these projects for five years, like I feel like, you know, stuff comes out from three years ago that, you know, that I can go back to. And I think there's that sort of institutional memory, which yeah. I realize now it's ironic because, Five years ago, when somebody would say, Oh, well, this is how we've always done payroll. I would like want to strangle them and be like, that's the worst thing for a researcher to hear is that we already know it. Like we don't we don't need any new information. Now, when people come to me with questions, I'm like, well, I already know the answer to that because we did research three years ago. Right. So I have to actually consciously make sure that I'm always open for learning too, having been here for so long. So maybe that's the negative of being an internal person. Uh, as a as a consultant is something, you can always come in with fresh eyes and and be willing to right. learn something new.
0: Right. I, I mean, I don't know. The thing I like about consulting is, I mean, I'll just say the same thing you're saying in the, the, the opposite. The thing I like about consulting is being able to come into something that I haven't seen before and try to figure it out. It's often usually overwhelming, and uh, but I rely so heavily on people that are that understand the problem space, so that I'm not trying to like reinvent the wheel so and and i have uh admiration and and, uh, a little bit of jealousy for people that stick with something for a long time because the time horizons for the i mean the kinds of change you're talking about making is it's very long i don't work that long term with somebody um so I don't know. I mean, my rationalization is we need both. You need people that live in the problem space and facilitate new ways, you know, uh, that hold that on, hold on to the depth and sort of advocate for that depth of insight. And you need ways to keep getting fresh insight that, yeah, I agree with you. It changes over your tenure. And so I, I think we agree. And, you know, you got to find the, the role that you can sort of thrive best in, I guess. Yeah, totally.
1: Yeah, I mean, I also, even as an internal person, I like to go into a research project at as naive maybe not as naive as possible but relatively naive so you know you could naturally ask the question you know well what do you think it should be sort of in the research process or you know how would you how would you want it to go you know instead of like knowing the answer to that and and possibly being somewhat biased or or explanatory rather than questioning
0: i shy away from getting into like technique too much in these conversations, because I think we're looking at the organization. But that being said, you said something that kind of intrigued me. And um, I just wanted to, to ask a little more about it. And when you described sort of this, these ethnographies, you said, uh, you going into these organizations and saying, oh, teach me how to do payroll. Um, you know, I don't know what you literally said in the actual interviews, but uh, any thoughts about the framing like there's lots of ways to get to learn what people are doing and I wondered if you had a point of view about teach me as sort of the, the the mode of inquiry.
1: Yeah, I mean, in that case, we were purposely trying to figure out what we don't know. You know, you don't know what you don't know. So, we were trying to get the the user's point of view on it. So we didn't, in that case, we did not want to kind of structure the interview yeah. very much at all in a certain way, because we wanted to see sort of what came out from them. Uh, we were possibly over, you know, guarding against imposing our own sort of biases and understanding and structure in it. Um, but I mean, that, that was essentially why we chose that sort of line of inquiry. And I, I, uh, I do think there were literally like four or five questions we used mm. there. And I will say that, so my, we didn't talk, we started to talk about my background, but my first job out of undergrad was for a marketing research company and um, their technique was literally one question and they would do one-on-one interviews and it would just be like, tell me uh, your thoughts and feelings about how X, um, you know, impacts your life or, or tell me about your, something like that. And it was literally one question. And then you were only quote unquote allowed to repeat a word they said or like say, you know, let we would either letter up or letter down. So it's either, you know, um, so if they'd say like, you know, it makes me feel tired. Well, what what is, what happens when you're tired? Like that's the those would be like lettering uh, down or like what you know, what does tired mean to you or something? I think that was lettering up. It's a long time ago now, so I'm probably butchering it a little bit. But like literally one question and then like never say a word that they didn't say yet. So that that's kind of the the technique that has driven sort of my discovery type research, exploratory type research ever since is like uh, never impose your own words or structure or anything on it and just let let the person you're talking to uh, teach you. I'm so self-conscious
0: of whatever word I use now or whatever question I ask you. Um, Because I I mean, the reason I'm curious about the teach me questions is I think you could ask them, uh, since we're talking sort of mode, you know, one of these kinds of questions we might ask, is there a difference between uh, how do you do payroll and teach me how to do payroll?
1: Um, yeah, I think there is. Um, I mean, I don't know if this is necessarily true, but if you say, how do you do payroll? They might say, this person's from ADP. I'm going to tell them how I use ADP products or I'm going to tell them the right way. Whereas if I say, teach me, they're going to teach me, that they're going to show me the real way Yeah, in a way. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. like it's almost like, um, you know, you you go to a a university course on how to do something right and then you go in the real world and you try to do it it's not exactly like the book says right so like maybe it's how do you do payroll they would give me the book version yeah. and teach me how to do payroll and they give me like the the real life version
0: mm. That's a really nice distinction between the two. Okay. Um, so, just well, we'll switch gears a little bit. So, you know, as part of this effort to bring more people out in the field and get them kind of exposure to the lives of customers and really participate in research, I think you talked about note-taking and other kinds of roles that you're given giving to them. Um, yes. Yeah, so, they are at one level they're sort of performing some of the tasks of a research. I mean, I guess I'm wondering what's what's are, is there more? Are they, you know, is research happening that doesn't involve you? Are they doing some of this on their own? I don't know who they is, but the yeah, I mean, org.
1: so it's related to the idea of the innovation lab, sort of teaching the organization how to do these things. And so, I mean, uh, because we're getting different people from different groups together too, it's not always a group that has like a robust UX function, right? So they might go back and if they want to continue. To be um, invest, you know, to, to learn, they might have to do it themselves. Um, and yeah, I think that's happening. I do think there's sort of the, the constant debate everywhere and certainly internal within the ADP. And, you know, we have different answers in sort of different parts of ADP is like, I don't know, who should do the research or whatever. And, um, you know, my team are all like dedicated researchers and we have our design partners that we work with and the design partners Certainly help shape the research and we certainly help shape the design, but we're sort of two different people. We think that splitting the sort of lead responsibility is more efficient and we can get a lot more done. Uh, you know, some places, even within ADP's organization, they say the designers should do the research. And, you know, I've observed also sometimes some people will say designers should only do like evaluative research, like, you know, prototype testing type research. Uh, Because that's sort of more straightforward. Um, You know, you get a task, you ask people to do a task. It's a lot harder to like, I don't know, lead people, I guess. Uh, but some people, you know, might argue that they might be biased and they might interpret, you know, that they if they love their design too much. Again, it goes back to, are they really willing to learn or do they just want like to collect data to show that they're right? And that's just like different ways that different people are. So some designers probably are great at doing that and some designers might not be. Uh, and then some people might say designers actually should be part of the exploratory research so they can understand it more deeply and, uh, you know, and really, you know, like we talked about earlier, having collected the data, you understand the data more deeply and and really understand the pains that they're designing for better when they get to the design process. I guess you could add those together and say designers can do any kind of research. Um, and I think that's probably true. And then not only designers, but product management and could also do that stuff too. I mean, we definitely encourage um, everybody to get out there and um, talk to clients, and understand what they're doing. Sometimes I worry that if you get out there and talk to one client, you might overcompensate for their unique need or pain or whatever, um, which could ruin it for the other nine, 99,000 clients or whatever. So I we do, in that program I was talking about, try to force people to participate in more than one data collection point. Um,
0: it's, it's just, I think there's just lots of interesting issues around this, and you're right, this is a very common topic, Uh, or question or debate or just issue. And I mean, I, I just wonder long term. I mean, right now there are people with the title researcher who have sort of expertise in all the things that you're talking about. You listed a bunch of different aspects of what researchers are doing. But I wonder sort of where does it take us, you know, and I don't know whether it's two years or 50 years where, you know, we're holding on to some part of it and we have a belief that we bring value by doing that and we're empowering other parts of it. And we believe that that adds value. And I sort of wonder like, what will that ratio be? Or what should it be? Or, you know, what will will we have a role with this title in the future, or is it a process that then gets handled in a different way? I, I don't know. I don't know if you have a perspective on the 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 misty futures.
1: Yeah, I don't know. It's a it's a tough question for sure. I mean, I guess while you were asking that question, it reminded me of I heard a great quote recently from I forget his name, you probably know his name, the guy Uh, Who leads the design team at Envision? His quote about design thinking was The worst part about design thinking is the word design, because everybody should be thinking this way. And it's, you know, obviously empathy is number one step in design thinking. Everybody should be thinking empathetically. Um, And we definitely have groups within ADP too where you, where, UX, quote unquote, has matured enough that everybody's thinking empathetically, and and they think about UX as sort of everybody's role, development, product. You know, we ha- we do the we have the the triad formation. You know, UX, development, and product, and they work together on things, and. um in some places, all three of those people are really thinking empathetically and about end user needs. So, I mean, I, and also in those places, the UX people are thinking about is this feasible or not, right? And and trying to understand the trade-offs in terms of like, can we still get to the same sort of uh, meet the user need in a different way that might be more feasible or easier to do or whatever too. So, I mean, I think you really... Uh, being successful at quote unquote design thinking when everybody is doing all that stuff—it
0: yeah. reminds me of just the evolution from human resources to human capital management. It, there's a fundamental shift in the belief of sort of the value of something that we used to we used to optimize, and now we want to you know enable. And that you know you're talking about sort of how products get developed, and this idea of empathy being something that everyone can and should have—not sort of one group is helping another group, but that it's it's a shared. Value or principle, right? So, uh, I wonder if there's just opportunities. I mean, I mean, there's not ADP specific, but just the profession in general to rethink how some of the stuff is structured to to get to that kind of organizational culture or, or, or shared shared value and belief. Because there's there's a skill aspect, right? I mean, some of what you're doing is teaching people how to do some of the mechanics of research, which is I don't know. I don't know. I'm talking more than I'm asking, but so let me try for a question. Uh, Does teaching people the sort of processes and tasks of research is that a way to help illustrate these other principles like empathy and human centeredness?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think good processes and tactics for research come again from that. You know, I don't know if selflessness is the right way, but the right word. But like the willing willingness to learn and like ability to admit that. I might not be right or might not already know what needs to be done. And again, I think everybody needs to think that way. Um, But again, even going back to the example of the way that, you know, I ask questions without saying somebody else's word, like I don't, the part of that is because I can't assume that I know what you mean by happiness or whatever. Right. And so I think teaching that sort of instinct to not make assumptions is is a big part of teaching the, the the tactics for doing research. And, you know, it's very much related to the reason product and development are um, asked to take notes during the site visits is because in my experience, you know, product will do just what this woman did when I when I tried to present the, the ruler thing to her and say, oh, let me show you how to do that. Like in response to a question of how should I, you know, I, I wish I could do something rather than say, you know, why would you do that? Or or how would you like to do that? They would say, here's how to do it. And that's like not going to help you learn anything. You know, it might help them learn for that one moment. But if you can learn what's, you know, ask the five whys. I love the five whys. Ask the five whys. Bring it back and understand that and like build towards the fourth or fifth why. I think you're in a lot better shape.
0: Can you explain the five whys?
1: Um so the five whys is a, a technique of interviewing where you just basically somebody says something you say why they they answer that you say why why and it's basically it's getting to the it's getting from the surface level like tactical like I can't do this uh, you know to like why they can't do it or or what they would want to do because then you can maybe they don't actually need to do that maybe there's something an hour ago they should have done you know what i mean and and you can solve their problem that way and it helps you it helps broaden the potential solution space i think by understanding the the root problem as opposed to the surface problem but yeah i mean i think the 5 whys is really about understanding the root of the problem and and that's what research is about is understanding the root of the problem especially more like Let's say discovery or exploratory type research. More generative type research is uh, digging deeper into the root of the problem.
0: Right. And, and the there's a a lack of presumption that you understand. I think because right maybe sort of a question answer thing is ask. You know, what are you doing? Oh, it's this. But I think you keep coming back to this principle of not. You know, it's 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 the willingness to learn of us, but also the the not presuming that we do understand what the you know what the people we're interested in are doing. So the more you ask why, the more you're like, it might even just be an interesting signal to yourself. The more you say it's okay to keep asking why, the more you give yourself permission to not know something and then not know something else and not know something else.
1: And I actually, I set that expectation. Like if I'm doing an interview, part of my standard sort of interview introduction is I'm probably going to ask you some stupid sounding questions. I'm just making sure that I understand what you're saying. Um, you might feel like I, you just answered that question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Please just like, you know, forgive me in advance. Bear with me on that. And so I, it gives me permission to ask some really dumb sounding questions. But sometimes I get surprised and it's like the best question I've asked all day,
0: you know? You know, back to our uh, consultant and, and internal person thing, you know, one thing that consultant can do is not – I mean, I guess you can set up a study this way, but I – you know, you are likely, I'm guessing, to be from ADP a lot of these times.
1: Yeah, no, totally. I think that's definitely like going in naive is a great thing because you can genuinely ask a stupid question.
0: Yeah. Do you have to – Overcome the sort of ADP relationship in setting up that kind of framing to say I'm gonna be asking dumb questions.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think so. Um, I mean, I think for me it comes kind of naturally, and maybe for my training or just the the you know the natural way that I am. But I think um, and like I said, I set it up at the beginning so that it doesn't seem weird. Um,
0: so yeah. So you've mentioned a little bit about you mentioned your training. Uh, you want to say a little more about, you know, I know you mentioned this market research you started off working in, but maybe even go back before that. Yeah. Of, so,
1: so I went to Tufts university cause I had engineering and a good psychology program and I didn't know which one I wanted to do. Little did I know there was such thing as engineering psychology and, you know, Tufts had some courses in that. I ended up just doing psychology and then the story I like to tell is I, went and interviewed for like psychology jobs and realized that I have enough problems of my own. I don't want to deal with somebody else's problems. So I ended up finding this market research that was rooted in what they called Alderian psychotherapy technique, which is this idea of just like not ever saying anything and just letting the people talk and talk and talk and talk. And so really like enjoyed that. and, And around that time, like there are new technologies coming out. You know, I got a Palm Pilot as part of my work and you know, it was just really hard to use, and I learned about this thing called human-computer interaction. And Tufts had just started like a certificate program in human-computer interaction, so I took some night classes, thought it was really interesting and like the perfect combination of my psychology and engineering interests. And obviously that was in Boston. I grew up in Syracuse, both very cold, snowy places. So I decided to go to Atlanta and get out of the snow for a little while. I went to Georgia Tech and studied what they call engineering psychology or human factors Um, and really learned a lot about like social science and statistics and like, you know, hypothesis testing and like really like hardcore academic research, which, um, you know, I don't necessarily use today. But, uh, like, I think having that basis helps me think about how to create a research project, too. Um, even the exploratory stuff, I still kind of, like, have a hypothesis testing orientation to that. Even the qualitative research where I just have people talk and talk and talk, sort of. And, you know, it's, it's not the same as, you know, collecting, um, like, hard data like I would would have in school. But And then, yeah, so from there, sort of... Uh, got into human-computer interaction. You know, they have a great um, master's program. I went to the engineering psych PhD program because they would pay me rather than me paying them. That was another sort of thing that brought me along there. And then ultimately knew that, like, I was going to return to New York at some point. So came back up here and and got into the industry. So, I mean, all that. So it's very psychology-heavy. It's very social science and, like, experimentation-heavy,
0: my background. Yeah, and the team here, what's what's the team look like?
1: Yeah, so my team um, are six researchers, um, and we have a mix of backgrounds. So it's not all psychology people. You know, I've uh, you know over the years I've taken people from biology programs, which is also scientific, but not, um, you know, I've taken people from like design programs, you know, and they've all been good, you know, great people. I've had human pe- people with human factors backgrounds. So the, so we have six researchers and basically we're like semi-embedded in like the, the products within shared products. So um, like we, each of them sort of has a product that they focus on and they have their design and um, product management partners that they like a lot of work with and and collaborate with a ton. Um, And basically they are on that, you know, product team, but we all come together, you know, every week for our team meetings, but also in addition to let each other know what we're doing and share ideas and help, uh, you know, bounce ideas off each other. Um, And I think, you know, we kind of have the best of both worlds within our little product of being like embedded, you know, part of the product team, but also centralized where we can help each other and get support from other researchers. I've been a researcher of one at places Two, And like, that's great. You get to do everything and like nobody questions you or whatever, or they question you, but you know, you get to design all the studies. But uh, I found that I wish there was somebody that I could like ask advice on this tough, like research design or something like what do you think you would do or like you know help with analysis or even just like take notes and like put two heads together at the end like what was the biggest theme that we found here so we get a little bit of both uh we get to um be a part of the product but we also have this sort of small research community and then at adp there's another i don't know probably 30 or 40 researchers actually and some of them are you know two within a group of 10 ux people some of them are larger so it's a it runs the gamut But that's how my team sort of is structured.
0: And what's your role? What's your sort of leadership role within that? What does that look like for research?
1: So I help with prioritization of the projects um, across, like I said, they're semi-embedded, right? So if one person's way overwhelmed, I might say, hey, you know, Joe, go help uh, Jane on this project because like... They've got a lot to do, and that's important to my boss, right? Like I help them make sure that we're focused on the things that, you know, um, are – more visible and more strategic for the company and the, and the group as well. That's not necessarily the part I like the most. The part I like the most is sort of helping people think through their research plans and and projects and understand, like, so this person came to me with this problem, but, but like, what does that mean? What should I do? I mean, the, for me, the most fun part about research is sort of translating, like, the request, oh, will you do a survey on this to, like, what we actually should be doing and, like, designing that project. I really like, to me, it's a it's a, it's a nice challenge to do that. And like, so I institute some also like, I don't know, processes or whatever, like define the research goals, like, but that it's mostly to help me help them, but also to make sure like they're, they're not going into um, a project unclear with their stakeholders of what they're doing. Cause I, I've also been at ADP long enough that I know most of the people that they're going to be working with. And I know the, the stre- their strengths and their shortcomings and how to like work with those. So I think that's another big part is like, I've learned the ADP culture and like what works here really well. Like the establishing the research goals is huge because many times I've been burnt with, oh, well, I, I, well, did you find anything about this? Well, no, because we weren't, we didn't go looking for that. You know what I mean? Like, they're like, well, why not? I'm l- Now I can be like, because we agreed that this is what we want to do, you know? And um, it's a little bit of a C- CYA, but it's also like to make sure that, you know, maybe they had that in their mind at the beginning. They just didn't say it to me. So like uh, working through that with the stakeholders, make sure that I I know everything that, that I need to. And, and now- the people on my team know everything that they need to. What's the uh,
0: process for kind of f- for extracting those those goals for a research project?
1: Yeah, I mean, so like I said, they're semi embedded, so for the most part, they sort of understand it naturally, just like in day to day conversation or like you know working together, not com- you know. Um, but the, I mean, the process we have like a little bit of a. Research plan form. And like, there's like five or six elements that we have to fill out. You know, the research goal, the guidance is, you know, three to four bullets that, you know, um, explicitly state what we're trying to find out, but it isn't so generic, like just three or four bullets, right? So not too specific, but also not so generic that it could have been the the last project you did. You know what I mean? And then like, timing is, you know, an important one. Kind of what are we going to do with this? So once we answered these questions, like, are we going to take an action on that? Because there's no answer to that. Like we probably shouldn't bother doing this project. We Or we can deprioritize it if we have another one that has a big action. What else goes in there? Uh, uh Like the different kinds of materials we need. So like if we need a designer to build a prototype, like we make that explicit and get everybody's agreement that like there's somebody that's going to help us do that. You know, that has the time to do that off the top of my head. I think those are the, the main things. The other big sort of process that I try to... In, try to get everybody on the team to do, which I think has been really successful at ADP is in the presentations. So we do like, you know, a classic presentation where we, you know, show a picture or like, you know, uh, talk about, you know, the thing we were trying to understand if it's more exploratory and there's not like a prototype and all the things we observed or whatever. But then at the end... We summarize uh, what we call our insights table, and so it's it's all of our all the insights re- restated. So it's our summary, but it's pretty detailed. And we have our our insights framework, which is the observation, which is basically the data. Like nobody can argue with that. Then we have a recommendation, which usually follows really logically from the observation, and sometimes is like. So obvious it's kind of like, why'd you even say it? But again, as a researcher, that's why I ask dumb questions. I say dumb things just to make sure that we all sort of agree on things. And then the action. And that's we workshop with the team at the end of the presentation to establish the action. So the recommendation, the guidance there is it should be descriptive, not prescriptive. So it's like, it's not like uh, I don't know, make the button, you know, a brighter color so people can see it. It's Make the button more visible, and then like you can make it larger, you can make it brighter color, you can you know put it in a different spot or whatever. Like the team figures out like what's the right way to do it that fits in with the rest of the product and it's feasible and blah blah blah. Because uh, we've had a lot of times where like we would make a very specific recommendation, and you know there's some thing in the background we don't understand that makes that impossible. So then everybody's can't do that, and they just like I guess we can't fix that problem, but like we gotta. Work through the right answer to that problem. So, and then we have that framework. And depending on the team we're working with, you know, some teams might want the the uh, prescriptive action filled out. Like they might want us to make a specific recommendation and then talk about it. Some teams, if you make a specific recommendation, you know, they're going to react negatively and not really want to hear anything else. So we leave that blank. Sometimes we fill it in or whatever. And it helps us um, be also be very explicit at the end of the presentation. Like, what are we going to do now? And that, and then we take all those and we add them, you know, everybody takes their little table and they put it into, we have an air table that houses all of our insights from the year. And I can then report to my boss, you know, we had 750 insights and 350 of them like actually had an impact on the the products. And that's the kind of stuff he cares about most. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, so I, I love this, this separation between sort of the the qualities of the solution, the specifics of the solution, right? The, the These sort of last two columns. And, and, and I think I'm probably misaligned in terms of my own language versus yours, because I feel like there's a column missing, which I'm sure isn't. But if you're saying sort of observation, like where's where's interpretation or synthesis?
1: Yeah, so, I, so the observation is like, um, uh, this thing doesn't pe- fit people's mental model. So it's okay, it's, a, so it's in there. It's, yeah, okay. it's an interpretation. So the thing there. that
0: you're not, I mean, there's there's a there's a or form of data that's like outside that window. That's like the yeah, leftmost yeah, column. Right. Yeah,
1: that would be on the previous slide that yeah. has like a picture and like a
0: arrow and like here's what's happening, yeah. and then your first column observation. Okay. So I, so that's our misalignment. I would I would give that a different label, but I see what you're saying. Okay.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Each of these observations is like a thing that I saw, we saw a few times or like a theme maybe or something like that. I would say.
0: I think we get so messed up on these word. What's an inside? What's an observation? What's a theme? Language is,
1: uh, is tricky. And I mean, that's also like a, something that you see a lot sort of everywhere is miscommunications based on using the same word to mean different things. Yeah.
0: So, yeah, I think it, it obviously makes sense within, you know, a consistent practice that you run and I'm just like picking at you to translate it. So I understand what it is. Uh, well, thanks for doing that that sound i mean I really like the uh you know just breaking those pieces apart and being able to help a team if they need specific action items or you know empower them to make that decision themselves that is a way that acts, acts on the research and that you're being very responsive to the way that those teams work and that your process supports a variety of of, of different teams and kind of energies
1: yeah I mean we also find you know if the team comes up with the action together they're much more likely to actually implement that because like they can be you know they can be like that was partly my idea so i'm going to make it happen you know what i mean rather than somebody told me to do this and who's this researcher like they're a peer of mine at best you know what i mean like they're definitely not telling me what to do so i'll you know that's another thing that i see a researcher's role is is supporting other people do their job better i'm actually interested to hear your opinion um in terms of like so now I'm going to ask a question.
0: I guess we're at that point. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Like,
1: um, one of the challenges that we face is sort of getting quote unquote credit for the work that we've done. Right? Like a lot of what we do is help people understand the problem space better and and understand these, these things that, you know, their users aren't able to do or want to do or whatever. And oftentimes it's not like going to be brand new. Like rarely do you come up with something that nobody's ever thought of before. A lot of times we help solidify or better articulate those problems, which then you can attack much better. But um, in the end, the product manager is like, look at this great idea I had. And half the time I know that, you know, Research definitely inspired that idea or helped figure out how to do that. But like it's hard to sort of take credit for it. So that's part of what this insights tracker is for. So I, you know, we can, you know, say that this action came from this research and get a little bit of credit for it. But I sort of view researchers' goal role as helping everybody else do their job better, which, you know, leaves it again their job to to do these things. So I don't know. What do you think about that?
0: I mean, you're just tapping into a bunch of things that I've been thinking and talking about and literally had some of this conversation, you know, in the 45 minutes before I, you know, I'm speaking with you now where, uh, yeah, I was talking with someone about, you know, sort of the facilitation activity of the, the things are stickier if people come up with it themselves. So helping them, helping them have an idea that they think is their own. And then she said, "What well, you're saying, well, then I don't get credit for it. It just seems like another, you know, beyond our uh, language misalignment, Uh, we also are not maybe collectively aligned around what are we here to do and then how do we measure success? You know, if we're here to empower people, then we have to measure that. And I I took some umbrage recently about uh, uh, there's some, I guess there was, I think a talk happening and some people were tweeting about it. And the quote that kept coming around was my research has no value if someone else doesn't take action. And I mean, that made me a little angry, but it mostly made me sad that, I mean, I think researchers work very hard and are smart and passionate and are often in situations where they're maybe don't feel as valued, uh, or feel frustrated based where their expectations about what's gonna happen. Uh, that my goodness, we don't need to take that on ourselves and say, I'm what I'm doing is not valued unless somebody else takes an action because that to me is ceding all control of of success to somebody else, because you can't control if someone else takes action. I mean, I say this having worked on research projects for a very long time in a variety of contexts and having to just sort of let go or or redefine for myself what success looks like. Again, as a consultant, I don't have sort of uh, you know, manager driven OKRs that affect my compensation. So I, I might be able to, you know, I might have the liberty to think about it differently. But yeah, if somebody else's action is how you measure your own success, that just lets go of so much power and control. And and there are lots of reasons why other people don't do things. And if we're in the business of, you know, it's, it's, it's back to your example of that person who was like, well, let me go tell them the right way to do it. I mean, if you're, and obviously, you want to have a better outcome than that. But if you're, sense of worth and the quality of your 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 work is based on that person's choice to interpret that information that way. That's a lot to that's a lot to carry. And I f- feel like we need to redefine some of these things about what success looks like for research and like what are we here to do, right? If we're sort of I mean, being a supporter is not the same as being an educator, it's not the same as being a facilitator, and those are all adjacent words, but they are a different sense of yeah what we contribute, so I don't know it's a kind of a long a little rant for me or a long rant for me. You've definitely struck a nerve, so I hear you.
1: yeah, I mean, I think you said a lot of things that resonated uh, with me too in in that rant. so um it's good to hear other people are sort of thinking about that too. Um, but I really love the idea of maybe redefining the metrics. So like like I said, I'd report up to my boss the number of insights that we've had or observations that led to an action, right? Like, uh there's a million reasons they didn't happen, like, or they might have done a different action that I don't want to record because I don't like, like, so it's not, a, it's not a great um measure. But, yeah, I mean, part of it, too, is, like, can we take a uh, shared responsibility for that success of the product, right? Rather than the product manager being, like, look at this great product I got, you know, or I have, and, like, taking all the credit for the... Some product managers won't take all the credit. Some of them will. It's, a, it's, a, it's the way some people are too,
0: I think. Well, you were pointing loosely towards a future earlier in the conversation where, you know, this is a mindset and a set of processes that are sort of equally distributed across a lot of functions. So if that were to be the case, then credit also is the case and that, you know, sort of these different skills and processes are pulling together to change a product or change a product that that aspects of it that get shipped. So then that you know it might be more of a nirvana state that we're sort of playing with but that that sort of addresses this question about where does credit go the credit doesn't need to be sort of parceled out because it's about what you know is achieved collectively sorry if that's like a too socialist idea and
1: yeah, no, well honestly like where like i said earlier i think where ux is functioning the best you know the triad is taking responsibility and credit you know collaboratively and um I think that's great. I think that's
0: sort of what you're talking about, too. Well, it's a good sort of, uh, it's a good future vision, I think, that, that, that we can kind of hold on to. Is there anything else you want to talk about today? No, I don't
1: think so. Thanks for having me. It was a fun conversation.
0: Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Tell a friend about Dollars to Donuts and give us a review on Apple Podcasts. You can find Dollars to Donuts on Apple Podcasts and Google Play and Spotify and wherever fine podcasts are served. Head on over to Portable.com slash podcast to get all the episodes with show notes and transcripts. Special thanks to DJ Ann Frankenstein. Our theme music is by Bruce Todd.